1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
2: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality
1: simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash
3: metaverseimpact.
1: To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
3: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers on... Crime Writers on is the original True Crime Review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, a young boy is kidnapped for seven years. Even after returning home, a happy ending eluded his family. We'll talk about the Hulu documentary, Captive Audience. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host, of these are their stories podcast, my husband Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of Dead on Deadline, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello, Rebecca. And finally, our resident Doubting Thomas, author of The City Trilogy, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. So, Toby, I just wanted to mention a quick thing. So your last Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast was a book called The Library Book, right? Correct. I didn't read it, but I heard about it from listening to Kevin editing the podcast and listening to it. And apparently it's about like a library that burned down.
4: The Los Angeles Public Library. Yeah. Yeah. Millions of books.
3: Okay. Well, that's not great.
4: No, It wasn't great. (laughs) It
3: (laughs) wasn't great. Oh
4: well, shit! Th- observation. <laughs> yes. it was a bit
2: of a downer.
3: Our our local library had a fire in our tiny town. It's
2: a bad day for paper.
3: Yeah, a couple, a few. Remember, like, was it four years ago, three yeah. years ago?
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, our local library had a fire, and it was like three days after I had borrowed all the books to take on for some <laughs> I <vacation>. would <laughs> borrowed like four novels, and then there was, but we hadn't left yet, and there was a fire, and I'd, I was still working in the newsroom at the time. And I was like, oh, I saw the fire trucks go and I was like, I should go take some photos. And all the TV stations were there. And I'm I'm very in. I was very infrequently at like breaking news events because that wasn't my job. I was like digital director. I was I was like doing website stuff. Remember, I called you, Kevin, from the fire. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Kevin, I'm at a fire. What should I do? And he was like go talk to the fireman, yeah. Rebecca. Yes. Like, Look you, for the
2: guy in the white the, hat. A fucking yeah.
3: journalist. And I was like, that's not my job. I'm always like behind the computer, like working with other reporters, doing their stuff. So anyway, so we had a, a fire at our library and everything was, you know, not great, but they were able to, they hosed everything down, but it did create this very big disruption. And the disruption was basically that if you had a book out during this whole period of time of, like, six months while the library was sort of restoring itself or whatever, they just kind of forgot about you. And It didn't really <laughs> matter. And it was just sort of like this trust system where, like, you could maybe bring your book back and put it in the repository that's, like, on Main Street near the library and put in the thing or not. Toby, I had these books for, like, fucking two years, and I did not know what to do with them. I finally brought them back like literally six months ago. This was like from a couple of years ago. I brought wow. them back. I felt way better. Like, hearing about your library thing just made me think about, like what happens in that like period of time with all those books that were out?
2: It's like the people who weren't in the building when it burnt down. They're fine. Mm. Yeah. They're safe. Those books are safe. Yeah. It's okay if you, what are you gonna get? find a nickel a day? What, what the hell?
4: <laughs> she does not, surprisingly doesn't really delve into what what happened to the books that were in Ow. circulation um
0: yeah
2: it got up
4: to 2000 degrees we know that mm. yeah the whole thing was just like a catastrophe because the yeah. books that weren't burned were soaking wet yeah and so it's a really interesting story in that they they basically have to freeze the books before they start mildewing so it was like finding freezers that were you know, big enough where you could store, you know, thousands and thousands of books. So anyway, I I mean, I don't want to summarize the book, but it was an interesting thing that you didn't hear anything about.
5: I I don't know. Was that here that we were talking about this, where the New York Public Library stopped giving fines and they found that people were like actually reading? Yes. Because they'd been afraid to... Wasn't that here that we just talked about (laughs) that? Yes. Yes. Fineless
3: libraries encourages more borrowing. Yes. That is a thing. Yes. Don't give fines. People will borrow books. Mm -hmm. all right so people should listen to your the point is toby people should listen to the deep dive about your discussion about a library book
4: if this little back and forth between you and me has not convinced people to sign up for (laughs) patreon and listen to that episode i don't know what i can do for them
2: correct a lot of people (laughs) just unsubscribe (laughs) but that's cool too yes
3: (laughs) yes and just so you know i did finally return those four books finally after two years of guilt all right, um, so Kevin, what is coming up? This is Thursday, obviously. This episode. What is coming up on this coming Monday's episode of Crime Writers on?
2: Oh, we get to Netflix and chill all weekend because we're going to be talking about the series finale of Ozark.
3: Oh God, the seas. The series. So this is it.
2: This is it. Uh, no more Ruth. Savor it. Let's hope it turned out better than uh, kill, uh, Killing Eve. Oh, oh my God. Kevin,
3: can you just do like one final, like pre, we, well, pre us watching it, Ruth impression, please?
2: What the fuck, Marty? <laughs> Why do you got these fucking library books? <laughs> I'm not a goddamn cop. <laughs> you know I can't read good. <laughs> I don't know fuck about shit. <laughs>
3: oh Oh, boy all right well with that i think we should get to our review i'm going to go ahead and drop that
5: first clip
0: a bizarre story with a happy ending
5: well everybody wants a happy ending and not very many true stories are a happy ending
3: In 1972, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was kidnapped and raised by his abductor under an assumed name. At age 14, he made his escape and returned home. Reporters couldn't get enough of the miraculous story, and a TV miniseries captivated the nation.
4: As kids, they want us to, you know, believe a happy fairy tale kind of, you know, ending. And it just... It saddens me to think that my dad had to go through all that pain and suffering just to get his story told.
3: But there was no storybook ending for the Stainers. The following years brought conflict, tragedy, and an unthinkable crime.
2: He said, before I say anything, I want you to contact producers in Los Angeles
1: because he wants a movie of the week made about his story.
3: The Hulu documentary Captive Audience, a real American horror story, follows the ordeals of Stephen and Corey Stainer. It supplements its historical footage with clips from the 1989 TV miniseries and with research interviews from its screenwriter. It shows how a story can be manipulated and how the media can treat you like heroes one day and villains the next. We're going to be talking about plot points from Captive Audience, so if you want to remain spoiler free, Go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, Laura Bricker, you did not have any access to television while growing up. So you had no access to or had never heard of, I know my name is Steven, right? Uh, I right. know my first name is Steven. So like, what did you think about the whole idea of this whole thing that this family had even like had a documentary like show or a series made about them.
5: Well, as I was watching it and just you know, obviously struck by like the amount of media scrutiny that was on this family for years and on Steven when he comes home, I'm like I'm probably like the only person who doesn't know about this case because clearly it was everywhere and it was all over the news and it was all over the made for TV thing and it was all in like People magazine or whatever. But I think, you know, at that time to have this level of media scrutiny, it felt like, you know, this is, and we've had other child abduction cases, but this sort of felt like one of the first cases where you did have this level of what we see now all the time, like 24 hour news coverage. Like they had like people, they were like, there were people on the the roof. There were people everywhere. Like, I think at one point, you know, Stephen's wife was talking about his funeral and and was like, there was just like media there. And like, anytime something happens, the media is there in our family. It was kind of overwhelming. You know, I'm thinking, my God, because it wasn't a time where... That was the norm to have the media everywhere like it is now. Mm. you know, Like it wasn't like we could just turn on, oh, we can turn on CNN or Fox or MSNBC and watch this twenty four hours a day. That was not that time in history. So for that family to have that level of spotlight cast upon them was, you know, pretty overwhelming. But also, what the hell is going? I mean, this it, it's you you really can't make this up when we get into, like the finale of what happens with the story. But just, it was a lot. So am I the, did you guys all watch this show? No. Did you all watch this? I, I
3: remember it. I don't remember. I, I I remember its existence and I probably watched it but I definitely remember its existence. I remember it in the ether. I kind of remember like the Oprah like stuff. I remember just sort of it existing. It wasn't like the face in the back of a milk carton, Adam, like those things didn't like rise up to that level for me but I do remember it. Um, Kevin, you know, one thing I kept thinking when watching this, we always ask this question, right? Mm-hmm. There's a true crime thing, a series gets made and we're like, "Oh, there's already been a mini series about this. There's already been a movie about this." This thing uses the mini series about this right. as source material to tell its story. It is the most one of the most meta things we've ever seen.
2: It is a very peculiar What do you
3: think about that just formatically? The mini series is part of the story of this series.
2: Right, they kind of use it as B-roll and they use it to help illustrate certain points. And, you know, they also get the fruit of the screenwriter's interviews to bring a completely new perspective to it. The making
3: of the miniseries is part of the series.
2: Yes. The writer is speaking my language when we're talking about, you know, what's happening and and discussing it with, you know, the people at the network about how they're going to write the story. There's audio tapes, but there's also transcripts from those interviews that they bring on two actors. The two actors that played the kids back in the miniseries to have them voice it. And like, oh, that could have turned out really bad. But I thought it it, it
5: worked. You're going to read these interviews with Steven.
1: Okay. Well, I didn't want therapy. Well, there was a lot of suggestions of getting therapy from people. I just said no. I mean, I'm doing just fine. And so I don't feel I need it, you know?
2: You know, when you find out later that, you know, it wasn't like a cheapo kind of miniseries. This was... You know, at the time, at the time, Emmys, at the it, time
3: was... it was prestige TV. Now, keep in yeah. mind, this was before there was such a thing as prestige TV. This was there was no such thing as prestige TV at the time. It was, a
2: network TV miniseries at that time was, was a was
3: like like the yeah. Thorn Birds was prestige TV. Like it was, it was all cheesy, right? Yeah. So, Toby, what did you think of this? Because what we should anybody who hasn't watched it, we should explain. This is a true crime story where they interview the family members of everybody that involved but they also show clips from the miniseries as if they're looking at the past, but they look at use the miniseries clips, but then they use what the screenwriters did to sort of talk about how fucked up the media coverage was, but then they bring in the actors who acted as kids in the miniseries, but now they're adults, and they have them read both transcripts from the miniseries, but also the material that was used by the people who made the miniseries that informed the fucked up media coverage. Like... What did you think of the formatics? I've never seen anything like this before.
4: You know, I thought it was great, actually. I mean, I think that, you know, the subtext that runs through this entire thing is how particularly the case with Stephen was presented to the public and how the public got its understanding of it. And in some ways, it seemed to me like some of the most interesting, like just brief little moments is when these actors who, you know, were, were were kids, essentially, when they were playing the parts of Stephen and Carrie, but, you know, they had to kind of inhabit those roles and kind of understand what was going on. And then they come back as adults and are, are reading these this interview um, transcript stuff. But there are just these brief moments where they're reacting to what they're looking at, to what they're reading, or what they're learning. And I don't know, there was just something very affecting about that and about Having these two who I probably without really having much of a sense of what was going on were very responsible for how the public kind of perceived what happened. And then at this late date, taking a look and just sort of being taken aback by what they're learning, what new stuff they're learning. A lot of it is is interviews after the miniseries came. Well, I guess it wasn't after it came out, but it was after they'd already started acting in it. I, I don't know. I, I I thought that was I thought it was super effective. And I felt they did a good job of not leaning too hard into it. But it was kind of like this constant, at least for me, kind of beat that was going on beneath the surface was like, our understanding of what happened is absolutely created by both the news media and then by I guess I mean I didn't I didn't even know this thing existed, but this uh, apparently super popular made-for-TV miniseries.
3: Larry, what did you think about having the actors who played Stephen and Carrie read the transcripts from the interviews that the TV filmmakers did
5: with the real brothers? That was sort of weird. It was a little disconcerting at first because it was like, oh, that's weird because you know, these actors, obviously, like, I don't want to say it's like a breakout role, but I mean, they became like, at one point, one of the daughters was like, well, like, every time I saw this guy, I like thought of my dad, because I had seen him in the movie. So they kind of assumed this persona. So then having them reading the parts like that and reading the interviews, especially after so much was modified for television to make it kind of like narratively more compelling. It was another level of weirdness in this for me. I, I I didn't really have any, like, big thoughts, pro or con about it. I just thought, like, how do you move on from that role when you've played Steven? And now everybody, including Steven's daughter, looks at you and thinks of you as Steven. You become
2: Parker Lewis and Parker Lewis <laughs> won't lose.
5: Lewis <laughs> can't lose. Can't me. lose. That's it. Parker Lewis can't lose. That's him.
2: Hey, let me abduct everybody's attention for one second. Oh,
3: wow. Okay.
2: I know it's a bad transition. It really talk- <laughs> a really
3: sloppy transition, Kevin. Way to go.
2: All right. Let's do the business wait, in let, the business section. Wait, let's have an actor
3: read you doing that transition. Oh, shut up.
2: <laughs> so right now on Patreon, you can get the Crime Writers on After Show. Leave it to Bricker, Toby Ball's latest Deep Dive Book Club podcast, and we'll have an episode coming up very soon of Married With Podcast. I cannot wait. It's my favorite judgy thing to make. The two of us who are married. To each other Mm. on the panel. For now. Do our own podcast. Also want to let you know that yesterday came out our latest episode of These Are Their Stories. Yes. The SVU episode we're talking about is called Totem. Bananas. It's the one in which Jeremy Irons comes on as the... Profiler Ugh. and the girl is left in a bag with a doll, oh, and all of a sudden, God. towards the end, the sister says, "This is my bedroom," and the mother comes in. "What are you doing in my bedroom?" It's and everyone bananas. goes, "Oh, yes, yes, it is yes."
3: Bananas. It is so good. The episode, the episode we're talking about, is bananas. But the podcast we recorded about the episode is super good about one of the most bananas and gross SVU episodes ever made.
2: Yeah, our guest is our friend Irish broadcaster Chris Green. Yes. yes. And uh, if you want to get exclusive podcasts, you can do that by signing up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Also, sign up for our free newsletter. Go to crimewriterson.com. Drop in your email. You'll get special stuff comes out every Thursday where we talk a little bit more about our reviews. We do crime writers on behind the scenes. You can see photos of the pet of the week, tweet of the week, all sorts of great stuff that you can only see there.
5: Apparently, you took a poll in the last newsletter, and I realized that because I started getting bombarded in my email by people with ideas for my vanity plate. So (laughs) there's all sorts of things in the newsletter. Kevin, I have a question before
3: we end the business section. Do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Well, how
2: could I ever forget? Our Patreon patron (laughs) saints are Nelson Parks and Karen Clark. who loves Rebecca more than life itself. Oh, Karen. Bless you.
3: Karen, by the way, thank you so much for the post that you put up in our Facebook group this week. It made my life, honestly. After seeing a bunch of really shitty reviews on this podcast about me in particular, your post made up for all of them. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please tell all of your friends, Karen, that you love the show and that you also love Kevin and Laura and Toby too because I wouldn't be able to make this podcast without the three of them. So thank you all. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Nelson.
2: All right. Reel it in.
3: And thus ends.
2: And thus ends the business section.
3: The business section. All right. So, Kevin, I want to talk about the case a little bit now. Mm -hmm. So, Stephen was kidnapped by this guy, Parnell. Parnell yeah who raised him, obviously he abused him as we find out later, but he also raised him as his son sent him to school, yeah, where he lived in a community, but he lived like in a community in school, but he went to school like he had a girlfriend, he had friends
2: played football and he, football, yeah, but he right, was right. also
3: like the like the poor kid in school and like everyone like he had a persona in school like what did you think about just um I mean, he almost was like a high-profile kid in school. The way he was raised by this guy, like, it's an incredible. I mean, of course, this is pre-internet, pre-cell phone, pre-social media, so it takes on a different kind of like aspect that way. But it is pretty extraordinary.
2: Yeah. Um. The idea that he was, you know, perceived—well, he wasn't perceived as the poor kid. He certainly was not growing up in, uh, you know, the lap of luxury. There, there, there was, you know, the idea. Oh, there are weird parents, and there are unconventional parents, and they just kind of assume that his dad is is that. And it's, you know, you brought up something. We said, oh, he just lives as as his son.
3: Everyone, he wants a son. That's that's what what? later
2: on they were saying. Like, well, he just kidnapped him because he wanted a son. No, no, he did not want a son. He wanted a victim. Yes, um, that he could have all the time. And I'm thinking. Were people being polite or were they just really that naive? they were that naive? That, like, they were, sh- well, what? Shocked that that's what it was? Because right now, like, in 2022, our brain is like, he is taking him for that purpose. You know, I think if anything, we look at it and said, he took him, but he didn't kill him. He took him and kept him around. That's different. Yeah. You know? You know, sometimes we see, like, women will kidnap a baby because they can't have a baby. A grown man doesn't take a prepubescent kid for any other reason
5: unless to murder like yeah John Wayne yeah Jason.
2: and you know we had this this part of what we hear is the screenwriter talking about that aspect of the story and sort of talking like how do we tell a late 1980s television audience how do we address the fact that this kid was molested yeah and how do we do that in a way that you know doesn't say that didn't happen? But how do we imply it, that it's clear? And I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they did anything more than what they showed, but there was a scene where he's like, Hey, Pete, Dennis slash Steven's friend, you want to come out to the, the barn? And the way he gives him the look, and there was a little bit of not subterfuge, but maybe it's sort of this, I don't know, modesty that it was part of the, the television networks dealing with it.
0: Here's what's going to happen. Would you come with me, please?
4: The people who tune into this show are going to know that it's about a guy who kidnapped a
1: kid and molested him.
2: The last one is sensational. Oh,
1: absolutely. But the problem that we have to face up to is it
3: exists.
2: The writer was aware that we have to do it, but we can't be explicit about it. Now, like on HBO, it might be handled very differently. You think? It could be, but you know.
3: Toby, what do you think about that? Because the sort of like. where it happened, obviously, is one thing, the Pacific Northwest and this whole, like, small community but large place aspect of it. But also, I actually, as a child of the 70s and 80s, am not surprised that a man could kidnap a boy and that no one could think anything of it. Because that was just not the way people did not think of predators and victims that way in that, at that period of time, Right.
4: Yeah, I mean, it certainly wasn't part of the culture the way it is now. I was seven, I think, when this happened. So I'm not sure I like have a real feeling of the zeitgeist back then. But it, does, it was a different time as far as that stuff. I mean, I, I feel like we're much more, for better or for worse, have the antennas up for this kind of stuff now. And I think assumptions about what's going on, which are informed partly by fact and partly by sort of some of the cultural norms right now, I guess... Mm. I mean, it it it, def- it definitely was a a different time, and I, and I do think again, it's you know, now I mean, there'd be no question what people would think about it. Yeah, and it certainly wouldn't be like, oh, he just really wanted a son. Yeah, that would not be the take. No.
3: We should we should also keep in mind that in the pop culture sphere,
4: uh-huh.
2: like
3: not just in the real world, but in the pop culture sphere. So this was what year, nineteen eighty nine?
2: The miniseries, yes, yeah, in
3: nineteen eighty four. There was a huge television movie that I will never forget watching in my entire life. It starred Ted Danson and Glenn Close. It was called Something About Amelia, or There's Something About Amelia. Mm-hmm. It was about a family where the father, played by Ted Danson, molested his daughter. <gasps> and it was a whole thing. The family breaks up because the father is molesting the daughter. And you know how the miniseries ends?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> They all have dinner together. And... The
3: family gets back together and everything's fine.
2: You thought the ending of Killing Eve was fucked up.
3: Because in the 80s, like, that. I mean, honestly, for everyone who's listening now who's, like, younger than, like, 39 years old, the era in which we grew up was super fucked up with these kinds of conversations. It was just incredibly was, different than it is it was now. It's just
2: like, oh, what... <laughs>
3: It's like let's just put that in the feelings box and put it under the bed and never speak of it again. But like that was the era in which we grew up, and this like if she had
2: a tattoo that was bad or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. like like
3: they can just get over it. They can reconcile, right? Like he's not a criminal. He's just a dad who made a mistake. I mean, that's the era that this is coming out of. Yeah, this 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 crime.
2: We're getting there in fits and stops of like being honest about the troubles in the world, yes. the things that we never talked about. It's you know
3: correct. Like we're in a very different place than now than we are then. All right. Well, let's move on to what happens after uh, Stephen comes home because Toby, you said that you knew Carrie Stanner's story before you knew Stephen Stanner's story, right?
4: Yeah. Well, I didn't know Stephen Stanner's story until a few days ago when I watched this. Uh, really. Yeah, just because I read some article about Cary Steiner. I think it might have been an Outside Magazine. And it was mostly just about his crimes. And then there's a bit about his brother was kidnapped and then returned to the family seven years later, blah, blah, blah. And that might have played some part in it. And I was like, wow, that's freaking weird. But I didn't realize that that was a whole nother well-known story. I thought it was just like a little factoid about this guy's life. So... You know, once I found out what this uh, show was about, I was like, oh, okay. Because every once in a while it would come up and people would be like, oh, yeah, that's the Stainers. Like, how the hell do you know about that? But I guess it was because Steven was more famous than than Carrie, which I guess hmm. was part of the problem.
3: So, Laura, Carrie Stainer and Steven Stainer are obviously two very different people. But Carrie Stainer, as portrayed in this and everybody who knows him, says that he was troubled From the beginning, and it likely was not a result of his Mm -hmm. brother's kidnapping. Do you you have a sense of that from watching this? Because it it sort of is kind of all over the place for me. I I don't really know. I mean, obviously, we can't know. His mother won't talk
5: about it, and I don't... Do you blame her? Do Do you blame her for a second for not wanting to talk about it? No. I mean, I think the thing is that, like, you know, everybody says, oh, well, he wasn't well. There was always something off about him. I didn't really get that from the documentary, but I thought about it afterwards because I was like, you know, everyone says, oh, well, he was just, there was always something wrong. And then, you know, you have Steven come home and they're like, well, we talked about sending him to therapy, but then we just decided not to. So here you have two brothers, both clearly in need of therapy. And again, going back to what you were saying before, Rebecca, at this time period, that was just not what you did. Like, you, you really can't even imagine that these two things would happen to these two brothers. But at the same time, you're thinking, like, what if it was a different era where they had therapy? Would this have still turned out the way? It, well, I mean, Stephen, who knows? I mean, he just got hit. He, he got hit on his motorcycle. That was oh a freak accident. What a horrible ending for him, right? Mm-hmm. Horrible ending. But Carrie, I mean, like, that was crazy. And, you know, so you have his mother who won't even talk about him. Do you want to talk about
4: any of that? Or would you like to leave that alone? No.
2: Okay. You Will not.
4: You got it. I just
1: wanted to make sure I was...
5: Yeah, you're, you're clear. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you're clear. And then you have, like, was it like his niece who was like, I was really interested in this case until I realized it was like Uncle Carrie. She was already the daughter of trauma
3: because her father was Stephen Stainer. She barely knew him, except that people kept telling her her dad was a good dad, right? But she didn't really yeah. know. And now, of course, she's a true crime fan, which is like, oh.
2: Yeah, you know, guys, the Carrie story is Interesting about, you know, how does he compare, and how does he see himself vis-a-vis his brother? And you're right. I mean, they they were talking about mental illness early on. And obviously, if you have violent tendencies like that, it is probably the, the result of some long festering issues that, you know, may be behavioral and may also be psychological. But I think it was really interesting that the thing that he told the reporter first off was that he wanted a TV movie made about it. I think Cary Stainer wanted to be noticed. And I think that the
4: reason he admitted it to me was because on some level he wanted the world to know. He wanted
2: the world to know his story on his terms. There was something inside that really did want attention. In this moment, he's trying to measure up to his brother Stephen. As a kid, he couldn't live up to him when Stephen was missing. And he couldn't live up to him after he returned as a hero. And he can't live up to him after he dies. So he's just he seems to like with all of his other issues continues to compare himself to to his brother, who was this ethereal presence in and out of his life.
3: Yeah, I don't I don't buy that as an excuse for killing. People. No, 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 no. I don't No, I'm not saying it's an excuse. I'm saying that, like, in my opinion, he. May have killed people anyway and used a different excuse.
2: I just think it was part of his psyche, you know. Or
3: he may have done something else. And he, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very it's hard for me to make that leap. That being said, there was a tremendous amount of trauma in the family, and maybe he wouldn't have killed people. It was trauma that was inflicted. I just don't, there's a bucket of trauma there. I mean, Toby, I don't think that we can deny that this family absorbed a giant bucket of trauma, period.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's that's something when you're watching the mother while she's giving the, the interviews, it's just like, man, she's been dealt a rough hand. It reminded me a little bit of The Family in, in Hidden Valley Road, which uh, is a book by Bob Kolker, which won all the awards, which he did a deep dive about. But it's about a family, I think, has 12 kids, and six or eight of them end up having schizophrenia. But it's just this incredibly tragic story of a family who, who I think, like the Stainers, they basically get like a community's worth of trauma just in this one family unit. You can see it on all of them. I mean, the Stevens kids, like the son, clearly is still living with that sort of generational trauma. Um, there's a lot of melancholy, I guess, when they're talking to the family members and really just about everybody who's in this. I mean, even the actors, I think, I feel like that's one of the sort of affecting things about it is... You can kind of imagine that they get contact. It's like, will you do this? We're making this documentary. It's like, oh, sure, that sounds kind of weird. And going to doing it, but then once they're actually doing it, you can. I mean, there's just you can tell that they're affected by it, right? You can tell by their sort of sides and and sort of their demeanor. So yeah, I mean, it's not like a really like some other things that we've watched, and that it's not. It didn't seem to me to be like a super tough watch. Hmm. but you can tell that the people in it, that there is sort of this melancholy throughout it.
3: I kind of felt the same way, and I also felt like the sourcing was incredible because they had the Stainer family, they had the kids. But Toby, can I just ask you like a follow-up on that? Because the family also has all of this material, apparently like in containers and trunks in their house, and the kids are able to pull it out, out and look at it. I found myself thinking like, Obviously, every family sort of keeps things differently, right? Like I have I'm not a sentimental person, so I don't have a lot of stuff in my house. But they're also keeping all of this material. And I just found myself thinking like I wanted them to just build a bonfire in their backyard, and like throw the news flippings. You know what I mean? It's like I felt for them so hard that this is what they have of their father is this fucking movie. And these news clippings of their uncle. You know what I mean?
4: Yeah. I mean, it, they don't go into any detail about this, but they're like, yeah, our stepfather was not a great guy.
3: Yeah.
1: So yeah.
4: they have this sort of difficult upbringing, I guess. And then what they know of their father is this, you know, I mean, it's almost like a legend, right? I mean, it's this crazy, crazy movie. story and yeah. then they can watch it on TV sometimes and Identify so much more with the actor on TV than the actual father who they haven't known that there's like this weird transference. So, um, I mean, ag- again, I mean, it's just, you know, that part of it is, is is heartbreaking. And, you know, he's not gone from their lives because of the trauma of, of the kidnapping. He's gone from their lives because of a sort of a freak, you know, vehicle accident. Yeah. But the story they get of him is not a normal one.
2: Nope. But how about that visual, you know, we see in the beginning, take out this big box that has newspapers and things like that. You know, throughout the documentary, we see headlines. But when you you watch this, it seems like what they've done is when they went to interview them, they were taking those newspapers out and literally laying them down on a gray shag carpet in that living room. And just that's when they were shooting the video. It wasn't like they went to a studio and they did all sorts of, like, scans and they're pushing in, zooming in like Ken Burns would. It seems like, while we're here, can we take shots of all these newspapers? Yeah. And they just laid them down flat on the ground and lit it right and boom, boom, boom. You what the are, reason just,
3: why to lay it down? It's organic.
0: I'm, yeah, 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 yeah. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.
1: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
3: Learn more at meta.com/slash metaverse impact. Yeah. All right, well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Captive Audience, a real American horror story? What do you think, Laura Bricker? Thumbs up or thumbs down? for this series on Hulu.
5: Yeah, I'm going to give this a thumbs up. I mean, this is a straightforward-style true crime retelling of a crime that, you know, has two parts to it, and it doesn't sensationalize it in a way. It really gives the family members that are still present a forum to talk. It relies—you know, it has great archival footage. It has this bizarre made-for-TV movie. And also, I think one of the most interesting things to me was, like, the access— to the recordings of the writers and directors of that made-for-TV movie, which was also just a really interesting window into how that was made. But, I mean, I grew up in Vermont. I had no TV. I did not see the, I know my first name is Stephen, made-for-TV movie, so this was all new to me. So I, I found it interesting, and I found it It was done in a respectful way because this poor family has endured so much on so many levels. I can't even imagine. Um, and I hope that the, the poor mother, what was her name? Kay. I mean, it just just awful um, what she has gone through as a mother. But overall, I'm going to give it a thumbs up. I think this was well done. Toby, well, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for captive audience?
4: So I thought the first two episodes were really interesting, the way they integrated – this, I know my first name is Steven, miniseries, which I had never even heard of, which actually ran, I think, my last week of my senior year in college. So I was obviously doing other things. And they they do a really interesting job of integrating that, integrating the research that was done to make that and some of the decisions that were made in making that uh, miniseries uh, to get a couple of the actors to come and read transcripts of interviews that were done as research for it. And I thought that was all sort of interesting and interesting reflection on how, you know, the public kind of understands this case. And I thought that was all really good. The third episode, which focuses on the brother, doesn't have any of that stuff. And I think is not as good, partly because of that. I, I just don't. It's an interesting story. They don't have the same materials they could work with. I think you had to have it. I mean, you couldn't really tell this whole story without having that aspect of it. But it does fall off a little bit there. But overall, you know, I I think they made some, they took some chances, made some interesting choices. And I think they worked out for the first two episodes. And it's not like the third episode is bad. It just feels, it doesn't feel like it stands out in any way from a whole bunch of other things. Whereas the first two episodes, I I do feel uh, do. But it's 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 a very solid thumbs up from me.
3: Kevin Flynn. I'm
2: going th- uh, thumbs up. Hulu has had some missteps with their crime documentaries. We had Sasquatch, we had Wild Crime, we had The Curse of Von Dutch. Some of the reasons that they didn't do well is because it was a poor selection of their source material. But I think that this really stands out. This is their best offering so far. The story, and it is really two different stories here about a family whether you came in because of Steven's story and you didn't know what happened after, or you came in because of Carrie's story, and you, you didn't know what happened before. I think that both of those narratives drove it really well. I agree with Toby that episode three was pretty thin, but it, not enough to derail the enjoyment of what they did. They put it together. It was a really unique use of the material that they did have, the archival stuff, which you know not only included clips from a, a TV miniseries. But also, you know, interviews that were not journalistic per se. They were, it was research for a screenwriter to write about the miniseries. It's stuff that we haven't seen used before. It was put together really well. There were a lot of places where this could have really been bad and fallen down when you bring in actors to, you know, voice transcripts and then you bring back Parker Lewis, Uh, (laughs) you know, but I liked it. It worked and it's a thumbs up.
3: Yeah, it's something for me, too. I'll tell you what would have made it, like, really great. So I agree with you guys, too. The Carrie stuff was thin compared to the uh, Stephen stuff. And it's almost, like, in real life, unfortunate that Carrie's case happened for this piece of media. Because, like, if it was just the Stephen case and this piece of media was made, it'd be amazing. Carrie's case, if there was, and I'm sure there is, a piece of fictional media tied to Carrie's case if they'd been able to do the similar treatment with that piece of media tied to Carrie's case and, like, do a part two of this where they were able to bring it, like, do a similar thing, if there had been a similar, like, like the Outside Magazine article or a a Carrie Stainer movie and like sort of weave the two together. Like that would have been fucking Episode incredible. of something
2: on investigation discovery. Yeah.
3: But the problem is, I think the issue is the family didn't really want to talk about it. Right? right. There were barriers there to telling his story. So, um, yeah. So I, I think it was imbalanced in that way and that's why it was unsatisfying in that end. But if they, if they could have figured out a way to flesh it out, the way they were able to flesh out the Steven side. I'm just going to say, though, I did not like this as much as I like it now after hearing Toby Ball talk about it. Okay. So, Toby, you know how sometimes you come into a review and you're like, I don't know how I feel about this, and then you come out of it liking it more? hmm You have elevated my appreciation of it. So I came into it like, maybe thumbs up? I'm coming out of it like thumbs up because of you. Oh, So, good. yeah, thumbs up. Thumbs up for me for this thing. I will say one thing. I don't get the title at all.
4: (laughs) I don't either. It's bizarre.
3: (laughs) Captive Audience, A Real American Horror Story. I think the captive audience might be a thing where they're trying to make a
5: a multi? kidnapping No, like thing. a
3: multi-season thing and no. captive audience is like series
5: one. I don't know. Or that there was a captive audience for the Made for TV movie. I don't know.
3: I don't like the title. Or
5: captive audience for the whole that family. That being
3: said, I am a thumbs up for this thing mostly because of Toby and because it's, you know, the first two episodes are really good. Yeah, so thumbs up for me for this. All right, so that's going to do it for us. But before we go, Laura Bricker, I have to ask, I have to ask, do we have a
5: cat of the week this week? <laughs> We do. So I had put out, I put out a call on our crime owners on Facebook discussion group for cats. And I had like 140 responses, which was,
2: it was called show us your kitties.
5: Show us your kitties. Oh my God. That's that's dangerous. Um, so I got so many great responses. I will have like cats of the week forever. But at the end, KT Kelly, uh, (gasps) did not say anything. KT was like, it's just so disheartening how hard it is to have a cat of the week. And I was like, oh no, did they nominate their cat for cat of the week? So I went, <laughs> they nominated their cat. So this cat might've already been cat of the week, but I don't think so. Cause I think I would have remembered this. So uh, KT nominated her cat like a year ago. <laughs> oh. And I, I felt the pain when I read that comment. So I went back and I found the nomination and it actually sort of fits my cat's life right now because as you know, Rocky Flintstone now has the kitty, male kitty urinary issue, and Pippin needs to lose some weight, and they're both orange males. And this is also an orange male cat owned by KT, Lewis. the Cat. He is 13, and she has had him since he was a kitten. He has had other reluctant cat roommates, for, for the last three years, he has been an only cat. He has always dominated space and the food bowl. At the last vet visit, he weighed in at 23 pounds, which is morbidly obese for a cat. Despite him being on a diet for the longest, he wasn't losing weight. And then during the COVID times, it was time to ramp up efforts for Lewis the cat. And he had a mandatory play and exercise before his meals and is now under 20 pounds. There is literally no weighing him. He's very strong and makes it known he is not to be handled. The vet said, don't bring him back in unless it's an emergency. Apparently, Lewis can be a pain. So Lewis is still substantial, but he's a lot healthier and full of energy and zooming around like a kitten. So Katie, send some more tips because Pip and the kitten um, needs to go on the same plan as Lewis the cat. And I'm sorry that it's so hard for people to get their cats as cat of the week, but I will get to all of you, even a year late. And the Larbricker, I know that you did not know this, so I'm just going to like throw this in
3: there. Katie Kelly is one of my like. Oldest friends. We were friends oh. from like junior high and high school. She lived down the street from me. We used to call in radio requests together. We were like fans <gasps> of U2 together. Katie's had a really rough couple of years. Katie is the best and I love her so, so much. And that is not a thing that you knew. I love her so, so, so much. And i been thinking about awesome. her all the time.
5: So thank you for picking her. Thank you. It's is not nepotism. It's not. It's not. No, because I looked, um, and we will put it in our newsletter, the before and after photos of Lewis the cat. And um, I'll give you a before photo of Pippin if you want to include that, because he needs to go on the plan that Lewis was on. Katie and I got in a lot of trouble when we were kids, or at least I
3: did. I mean, she never did. Her parents were great. Mine were mean.
0: All right. <laughs> Laura Bricker,
3: if folks want to reach out to you, they don't have to be my childhood friends, but if they just want to reach out to you and pimp their pets... To be pet of the week, doesn't have to be a cat. How can they find you either on our Facebook group? Of course, they can go there. They can email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com. But if they want to tweet to you, how would they find you there?
5: You can show me your kitties at <laughs> Lara Bricker on Twitter. That is so Twitter.
3: dirty. It is so <laughs>
5: dirty! You know it's dirty, right? You know it's dirty, right? No, I know. I know. But the picture, the, the little uh, graphic was not. It was just little kitty cat. Alternative
4: I know. is not a whole lot better. We are honestly. not yeah. going to
3: solicit kitties for you, Toby. But if folks just want to say hi to you, how can they find you on Twitter?
4: At Toby Ball NH.
3: And Kevin, if Linda folks want to show you their doggies, how can they find you on Twitter?
2: I'm at Kevin P. Flynn.
3: And if you want to show me your dogs on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at Crime Writers On. And please join our incredible community and our official Crime Writers On group. My friend Katie Kelly is there, as are many of my friends and your friends. Go to Facebook, find our regular Facebook page, search for our group. We will let you in. Just answer a couple of questions. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married With Podcast, Lara Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's incredible Deep Dive Book Club podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the incredible, almost college graduated, Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in a yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we debate which 80s TV star will play each of us in the miniseries Ricky Schroeder Justine Bateman on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later later you don't fucking want Ricky Schroeder man you do not want that guy I was gonna
2: say <laughs> Jason Bateman so I'm glad you, you.
3: do not want that guy Mm-mm. in 2002 <coughs> <coughs>
4: okay. you can go now
3: get your hairball out
4: I got it out